Season 2 of the Explorers. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. I work as an editor. That's my day job. Shaping books about adventure, travel, science, and, of course, history. But when I get handed a book about ancient history, I can't help but want to hand it back. It's a researcher's nightmare. Dates are never certain. Names, places, times, all up for debate. And trying to understand a woman's life in the ancient world? It's a little like squinting through very smoky glass. That glass was mostly made by men. They wrote down the stories of ancient women, defining them through their own lens and prejudice, turning them into what suited their narrative. Saints, seductresses, jokes, cautionary tales. We have so few direct quotes from these women, but they're there if we only look hard enough. And because I love a challenge, I want to try and hear their voices through the smoke. Just remember, as we go on this journey into the faraway past, to take everything with a grain or two of salt. To go so far back means relying on primary sources that weren't always concerned about accuracy. It means interpreting cave walls and reading through literature to try to sift for grains of truth. And it means being imaginative, taking what we think we know and filling in the gaps with our own conjecture. But I'll try to give you as accurate a portrait as I can. This season will be broken up into chapters. In each one, we'll dive into a different ancient civilization, exploring the world of women in that particular culture. Let's start with a civilization I've been obsessed with since elementary school, when I pass notes and hieroglyphics that I'm sure no Egyptian could ever read. Of all the civilizations in the ancient world, Egypt was perhaps the most prone to the miraculous. There is no country that possesses so many wonders, wrote Greek historian Herodotus, nor any that has such a number of works that defy description. They invented many wonders, the 365-day calendar, breath mints, paper, the ramp and lever, They refined geography, perfected irrigation and shipbuilding, and built pyramids so tall that no architect would match them for thousands of years to come. And then there's this particular wonder. Ancient Egyptian women had more freedom and power than anywhere else in the ancient world. They could own property, get divorced, hold down jobs, demand alimony. They ruled as pharaohs and were revered as goddesses. All right. But why was Egypt such an exception to the ancient rule? What did these freedoms actually look like in practice for commoners and queens alike? What did their lives really look like? Grab a linen sheath, your dangliest gilded earrings, and a whole lot of sunscreen. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout out to my patrons. My pirate queens, Edie, Emily, Get Grim Podcast, and Jessica B. And my lady presidents. Alexis, Ashley, Brendan, Amy, Avery, Jordan, Caroline, Cassie, Claire, Courtney, Debbie, Elizabeth, Ellie, Eve, Jackie, Jessica S., Caitlin, Karen, Casey, Kat, Catherine, Louisa, Lindsay, Mary, Meg, Nancy, Pamela, Paul, Sasha, and Townsend. 
If you dig the Explorers, becoming a patron for as little as $1 a month really helps keep the show going. Plus, it gives you access to exclusive bonus episodes, sneak peeks, and more. To check it out, go to my website and click on Become a Patron. My gratitude is endless. First, let's define what we actually mean by the ancient world. We'll pick up our explorations around the time when we humans start making things out of bronze and developing written languages. So, during the Bronze Age, which starts around 3200 BCE. From there, we'll travel on through the age of classical antiquity all the way up to the fall of the Roman Empire in 476 CE. That's over 3,000 years of time-traveling possibilities, so a lot of eras to splash around in. But let's hone in on ancient Egypt's timeline, because we're talking about a huge swath of time. We tend to think of it as one colorful, sand-blown sweep of grand pyramids, huge statues, and hot guys wearing eyeliner. But this isn't like season one. We're not looking at a specific slice of a century. We're examining a civilization that rocked out for some 4,000 years. You could fit United States history, starting from the Declaration of Independence, into Egypt's timeline some 16 times. Australian history, starting with its independent nationhood, would fit about 34. Historians tend to split ancient Egypt's timeline into several different periods. Picture it like one of those old-school wooden roller coasters. As we chug up the first hill, we're in the pre- and early dynastic periods, which cover the beginnings of ancient Egypt from around 4000 BCE to 2686. After that, we'll hit three high points. Times when everything was going well, the political center held strong, and the economy was stable. These are called the Old, Middle, and New Kingdoms. Between them are the dips, low points when things were in chaos, when Egypt was divided, and it was dealing with foreign invaders. These are called the Intermediate Periods. From 1069 to about 30 BCE, we have the Late and Ptolemaic periods, when Greece slithered its tentacles into Egypt, followed by ancient Rome. Egypt's last lady pharaoh, Cleopatra, was actually Greek, and by the time she ruled, the Great Pyramids were already ancient history. That was right before the age of pharaohs came to an end, and Egypt became a Roman province. Historians break it all up into numbered dynasties, each one representing a different ruling family, from Dynasty 1 all the way to 33. Has this roller coaster made you feel a little bit like spewing? I feel you. But never fear, I've created a nifty lady-centric timeline for you, as I think it always helps to have a visual. Hop over to my website to this episode's show notes and pull it up, why don't you? Don't worry, I'll wait. While we're talking about time spans, consider this. Less than 200 years ago, many of us were wearing corsets and still working on flushing toilets. Now we have iPhones and ships that go into space. Given how quickly things can change, it's pretty amazing how little Egyptian society did over those thousands of years. Let's slip into life in 1460 BCE, during the 18th dynasty, right smack in the middle of the New Kingdom that many consider ancient Egypt's golden age. We're living and thriving in the capital city of Thebes. Let's hover over the city for a minute, looking down on the land. 
And if you'd like to actually see it on paper, go back to the show notes and check out the handy map I made you, labeled with all the places and the names you'll need to know. You're welcome. Right now, in this time period, Egypt's richer and more prosperous than pretty much anywhere else. How did it become such a force to be reckoned with? Well, there's a reason Herodotus said that Egypt is the gift of the Nile. The Nile is the longest river in the world, even in our century, some 4,132 miles, or 6,650 kilometers, of life-bringing goodness. It flows, rather strangely, from south to north, winding through Egypt like a powerful snake and spitting out in the Mediterranean. That's why, even though we Theban ladies are in the southern part of the empire, it's called Upper Egypt, while the northern part is called Lower Egypt. The Nile dictates every aspect of our lives here, and how we see the world we live in. The river floods every spring, called the inundation. When it recedes, it leaves a verdant strip of land that is the literal lifeblood of Egypt. The silt is so rich that farmers don't have to do a whole lot more than toss some seeds out the window to end up with a rocking harvest. And that harvest feeds a huge portion of the ancient world. Much like they say that everything in Australia is big, has teeth, and can probably kill you, everything along the Nile is larger than life. Think giant palm fronds, date and banana trees, swaying papyrus, and giant hippos, which I just found out have webbed toes. Who knew? In its waters, you'll also find 18-foot crocodiles. (laughs) This river's powerful enough to conjure miracles. They say it has half the boiling point of other waters. It's seen as a giver and nurturer of life, which is why Happy, though he is the male god of the Nile, is often pictured with a fine set of breasts. He and his river are seen as fertile as well. As such, its waters are sometimes given as a wedding present to ensure the bride is quick to conceive. This is why Egypt is called Redland and Blackland, Kemet, black, after the fertile silt, and Deshret, red, after the desert surrounding it. The Nile is truly what makes this whole world go round. And in this world, we have three social classes. The small sliver that is the royals and the noble families surrounding them. The very large wedge that is free working people, and a smaller chunk claimed by slaves and serfs. As with everywhere we're likely to travel, your day-to-day life is going to depend entirely on what class you find yourself in. As such, we're going to weave the paths of two different women together, a wealthy noblewoman and a working-class farm gal. Stretch your limbs, ladies. It's time to start our day. We'll awake in a bedroom. Both of our ladies live in houses that are basically the same in terms of structure. Though your bed is not quite what you're used to, time traveler. It's got a wooden frame and springs of woven cord or leather strips. Kind of like that lounger at the public pool. You know, the one with the crisscrossing straps that's extremely uncomfortable to nap on. There's no headboard, but there is a footboard to keep you from sliding off as you slumber. You'll get snuggly with some linen sheets, but no pillow. Instead, you'll use a wooden headrest. It's in the shape of a sideways H, with one long, solid base and a gently sloping piece to rest your head and neck on. Which, to me, looks a lot like a torture device, but apparently it protects us from evil spirits while we sleep, so... 
we'll roll with it. Grab that oil lamp from the alcove by your bed. Our windows are small to keep out the heat from that scorching desert sun, and it's dark up in here. And let's head off for a morning pee. The house we're standing in is a marvel. It's not one of Egypt's temples, palaces, or pyramids made of stone and still standing in our century. These houses have mostly been lost to time. But still, long, long before air conditioning and indoor heating, our ingenious architects have come up with something that suits the desert's wild swings and temperatures and works for every situation and budget. A rectangular structure made out of adobe, which comes from an Egyptian word that sounds a lot like it, made of Nile mud and straw or sand. It'll have a door at one of its narrow ends, preferably facing north to catch the breeze, and be separated into three sections. A garden area out front with a central pool to keep the garden from dying, then a kind of open-air front porch surrounded by columns to provide shade for family get-togethers. Behind that are the rooms we wash up and sleep in. How fancy this structure is depends entirely on how much money we have. And since we're in Thebes, our house might be upward of three stories tall, connected to the ones beside it like modern-day row houses. Palaces and temples are another ball of wax entirely, but we'll talk about those later. We still haven't peed. As wealthy women, we'll have a latrine wall built into our house featuring a toilet seat, sometimes made of limestone, with some kind of reservoir underneath, but no real plumbing system. As a farm gal, we'll probably have a wooden stool with a hole in it, and beneath that, a bowl filled with sand. So, we've got a fancy litter box situation. FYI, we will be pooping this way until someone invents the flushing toilet many, many centuries from now. I don't know what we're using to wipe with, but it's not likely to be toilet paper. So, I hope you brought some wet wipes, if that's your thing. Now it's time to scrub down, because if there's one thing we Egyptians are serious about, no matter what class we're in, it's cleanliness. While our 19th century Victorian friends from season one are concerned that bathing too much is going to make us sick, we Egyptian ladies are concerned that bathing too little is going to be the death of us. Plus, being clean brings us closer to the gods. Even when you're dead, cleanliness matters. Spell 125 in the Book of the Dead says that you can't speak to anyone of import in the afterlife if you aren't clean, dressed in fresh clothes, shod in white sandals, painted with eye paint, anointed with the finest oil of myrrh. This is convenient, as living in a sticky hot desert tends to make one want to bathe multiple times a day. We Egyptians do it upwards of four times when we can. Often this isn't a full-body dunk occasion, especially for us farm gals. We'll be rinsing our hands, faces, and feet in basins specially made for the purpose. Full baths tend to be a public affair had in bathhouses, not at-home soakfests. If we're really rolling in dollars, we might even have ourselves a shower, aka a servant artfully pouring jugs of water over our heads. Hey, don't knock it till you've tried it. The water will go down a drain to be collected in a jar, then used to water the garden. We live in the desert, ladies. Water wastage is not a thing. We often mix natron into our bathing water, a natural salt not unlike bicarb soda, which is also used to preserve dead bodies in the mummification process. So, multi-purpose! If we can't afford that, we'll scrub ourselves down with an ash and clay-based soap, or oils mixed with salt to treat skin issues. 
After that, we'll slap on some deodorant that includes things like, say, turpentine and incense, and we'll get to plucking. Because a hairy Egyptian body is not a happy body. That includes most facial hair, and if tomb paintings are anything to go by, we're also not big fans of bushy eyebrows. Our outfits aren't going to leave a whole lot to the imagination. It's hella hot out, and lice are a fairly common complaint. So thank the gods for razors and tweezers. If you're confused about which implement is which on your dressing table, here's a tip. The razor is the thing that looks like a scalpel, and the tweezers look the same as the ones sitting in your bathroom drawer back home. They were made of copper back in the old kingdom, but now bronze is the metal of choice. Now it's time to brush our teeth. Yes, for realsies! Though their brushes are probably more like sticks with rags on the end, and their toothpaste probably leaves something to be desired in modern eyes. We don't know exactly what they used for brushing, but one recipe and how-to-brush guide dating back to the 4th century CE involves mixing precise amounts of rock salt, mint, dried iris flour, and pepper grains for a powder for white and perfect teeth. Sounds like a recipe for bleeding gums, but I mean, better than nothing. For those wanting to keep fresh throughout the day, there are perfumes. And there are a lot of them. During the Ptolemaic period, when Cleopatra's having her decades in the sun, some quarter of her city of Alexandria is dedicated to making perfume and the pots to keep it in. Since we haven't yet mastered alcohol distillation, these aren't like the perfumes in our century. To make them, we're soaking fragrant things in oil or fat, kind of like you'd make a chili-infused olive oil, then straining it through a cloth into a cute little jar. Its contents depend on what we can afford. Cedar oil is a popular favorite, and it's still a favorite in our century. Have you ever walked through a cedar pine forest? Sweet gods, it is the best smell in the world. Syrian balsam and oil of Libya are also some luxe options. Other ingredients include iris root, cinnamon, cardamom, myrrh, honey, even wine, and flowers from the henna bush. The Egyptians sure know how to create a diverse and potent smellscape. And now, gentlemen time travelers, this is where I tell you to buck up, because we're about to talk about periods. Deal with it. Though truth be told, things are hazy regarding exactly how we'll be dealing with our time of the month. We suspect a couple of supplies are used. Papyrus wrapped in cloth may have made a handy tampon, or a cloth tied to some kind of belt for a pad. There's a passage in one historical text about how unfortunate a laundryman was because of how many menstrual pads he had to deal with. Suck it up, ancient laundryman! Though our blood is not always considered a bad thing. It's considered to have magical properties, and in fact is used in several kinds of medicine. Suffering from saggy breasts? Smear some on those bad boys and things should perk up. Hmm, maybe later. Now let's put on a little cream to protect us from the sun, then sit down to apply our makeup. Don't tune out for this part, male time travelers. Egyptian dudes are more into this stuff than anyone. I can't imagine that, as farm girls, we're going to be piling it on, as we're probably just going to sweat it off as we go about our business. But as wealthy women, this is an absolute must-do. So let's gather our cute collection of little glazed jars, gaze into our mirror, a highly polished metal one, the word for which translates to see face, and get glamming.
Men and women alike are big fans of makeup, most particularly that dramatic cat-eye look this civilization is famous for. Take one look at the famous bust of Nefertiti and you'll know why we're so keen to get the look. It isn't just about beauty. Your eyeliner reduces the glare of the sun, repels flies, and looks damn good. A win all around! Originally, our eyeliner was green, a color thought to enhance health, and made of ground malachite, which is also prescribed for medical problems related to the pubic area. And guess what? Modern science tells us that malachite does indeed kill several kinds of infectious bacteria. The ancient Egyptians knew their stuff. In the New Kingdom, it's a black eyeliner called coal that's all the rage. It's made of ground galena, mixed with some fat into a paste. We'll apply it with a wood, bone, or ivory applicator stick, drawing it carefully around our eyes and all the way up to our temples. Subtlety is not a thing. This is not a look for the beginner makeup artist, so luckily us well-to-do women will employ manicurists and makeup artists, whose title translates literally as painter of her mouth. We'll put on some lipstick and rouge, probably a mix of red ochre and fat, and use henna to dye our nails all fancy-like. If you've been paying attention, you're probably wondering how you're going to get all that fat off your face later. Our makeup remover is powdered limestone mixed with vegetable oil. Scratchy, but effective. We'll have many pots and applicator brushes on our table. We might even keep them in a little carrying case. We'll have combs and special spoons, too, for all that mixing and sprinkling. Queens and commoners both seek the help of hairdressers when they can afford one. We Egyptian ladies aren't just settling for our natural mop of what is likely to be jet black hair. For those going bald or graying, we have many remedies to turn to, which usually involve some combination of, you guessed it, blood, fat, and oil. We like to wear our hair long with a sharp, blunt cut. But we might also cut it in horizontal rows or weave in some curls and braids just for funsies. It will all be greased into submission with beeswax, so your lover might not want to run their fingers through your hair. Wig makers also enjoy a brisk trade. Why? Because wigs are in, my friends, particularly in the New Kingdom. A lot of people, particularly men and priests, shave their heads altogether because it's cleaner. Can't get lice when you have no hair. And where we are, lice is a no-joke problem. But we're not going to just walk around letting our scalps burn. So after taking all that body hair off, let's add some back on, shall we? As a wealthier woman, we'll wear wigs to most social functions, whether we have a full and glorious head of natural hair or not. Hair on hair, baby! We're not in the business of making our wigs look natural. No, no. We want people to know we're wearing them, as they're expensive and make us seem much more fabulous. We might even layer on a few of them, one long, one short. Move over, Queen Elizabeth. We're about to outwig you. We'll adorn our coiffure with ribbons, sometimes made of leather or gold, tied around our heads. These can get quite fancy. Golden flower crowns and diadems thick with jewels of the kind we picture Cleopatra wearing. Though you'd better not wear the same one as Cleopatra, because she will cut you. Before we get dressed, let's put on some jewelry, because why not? Men and women alike are piling them on, from rings and bracelets to brooches and necklaces. These adornments are made with gold, shell, bone, 
jasper, turquoise, lapis lazuli. Again, subtlety is not our style. If we're feeling very fancy, we might even wear a kind of jeweled collar, which can get so heavy that we need a counterweight to dangle down our backs to keep us from falling over into our roasted peacock. Though we're not fans of the Hyksos, the foreigners who invaded and ruled here in the Second Intermediate Period, we're pretty glad they introduced us to earrings. We're even enjoying a form of ancient plugs. But no matter who you are and how much bling you can afford, you're very likely to have at least one piece of jewelry, an amulet dangling around your neck. It might be made of stone, metals like silver or gold, or wooden bone if you don't have a lot of cash on hand. The most popular are made of a ceramic called faience, a paste of ground quartz and water shaped into whatever figurine your heart desires, fired in a kiln and covered with a colorful glaze. Many are made using a mold, making them one of the world's first mass-produced items. Amulet makers can turn out thousands with just one mold, and they're crazy popular. Why? Because they call out to the gods. The Egyptian name for them is Meket, or protector, and they take the form of different gods whose intervention you might want in your affairs. A cat eye invokes the goddess Bastet, the slinky cat in charge of the home, fertility, and women's secrets. If you're pregnant, you might wear a Tourette amulet, a pregnant hippo goddess who protects expectant mothers. Let's sit in the nude with just our jewels on for a minute and ponder Egyptian religion, because it sits at the very heart of our lives here. This polytheistic system explains and controls everything around us. How well the crops grow, the flow of the Nile, the rising of the sun and the moon. Nothing happens unless the gods let it. There is no separation of church and state here. The gods are everywhere, always watching, and Egypt's prosperity depends on them above all else. And we have a lot of deities to choose from, somewhere around 2,000 of them, and a large number of these are female. This is key to understanding a woman's place in ancient Egypt, and why we're better off here in terms of rights than almost anywhere else. Here's how we see it. The gods represent a complete duality of male and female. Both sexes are represented in the Egyptian pantheon, and both are crucial for keeping everything in balance. Ma'at, the deity in charge of balance and order, is a woman. And Ma'at is key to Egypt's continued success. In the beginning, the stories go, the world was just infinite dark and directionless waters. Shortly after the creation of the world, the god Geb, or the Earth, and the goddess Nut, the sky, got sexy together. Note that the male god is the fertile ground here, while the lady is the one carrying the thunderbolts. Get it, Newt? Together they created four important children. Two gods, Seth, the lord of disorder, and Osiris, his opposite, and two goddesses, Nephthys and Isis. These brothers and sisters go on to marry each other, setting a precedent for a whole lot of royal Egyptian incest. But they also showcase how true balance can only be achieved when man and woman work together, and that women have an equally important role to play. And we understand that role can be violent. Take this little story about Egypt's first pharaoh, the god Ra. He was so good at his job that the people grew lazy, so to punish them, Ra sent a bloodthirsty, lion-headed goddess named Sekhmet to terrorize them all. 
That she did, eating thousands of people, earning cute nicknames like Lady of Slaughter and She Who Mauls. Can my new nickname be She Who Mauls? Because, yes, Sekhmet! But in the end, Ra couldn't rein her in. Whoops. So he and the other gods came up with a plan. They spilled some red-dyed beer on the floor, and she drank it, thinking it was blood, got drunk, and passed out. When she awoke, she snapped out of her crazed, bloodlusty mood, and Ra changed her into Hathor, the goddess of love and sexuality. A woman transformed from a power-hungry lioness to a loving, joyful cow. Yes, a cow. This dual goddess shows us that women can be powerful warriors and maternal figures, destroyers and nurturers. As the Insinger Papyrus has it, It is because of women that both good and bad fortune are on earth. That gives us a special kind of power, the kind that lets a lady be pharaoh. But more on that later. First, let's get dressed. We'll be dressing above all to keep cool. We won't have breathable cotton until the Romans show up, so the thing to wear is linen, most often spun by women weavers. The whiter that linen is, the better. For most of Egypt's history, white is the number one color of choice. Which impresses me, because I'm notoriously bad at keeping my whites looking anything like fresh and clean. White t-shirts are the enemy. When our white linen starts getting dingy, we might lay it out in the sun to bleach. We have no actual bleach in this era, a fact for which the Nile is probably grateful. But as 18th Dynasty ladies, we might throw some colorful linen into the mix, particularly if we can't afford fine fabrics. Nothing hides a cheap weave like dyeing it blue, am I right? The most common outfit is a sheath held up by shoulder straps. We're talking a long, narrow dress that begins at the ankles and rises up to just under our breasts. You'll top it off with a contrasting strip of material, wide straps or a sash to cover your lady orbs. Or you might wear two long rectangles that form a skirt and shawl ensemble, or a long sack that you can just slide right into and belt at the waist for some flair. Our gentlemen friends are wearing kilts, very breathable. But really, men and women's outfits aren't all that different. And if the nights get cool, there will be wool to layer. But here's a pressing question. Are we wearing any undies under there? Probably not. King Tut, he of the famous blue and gold sarcophagus, will be buried with many sets of loincloths, so it's possible that our men friends have mankinis under their outfits, but we're probably wearing little to nothing at all. If tomb paintings are anything to go by, our clothes are fairly form-fitting and semi-transparent. We Egyptians are not concerned about walking around semi-nude. And bodies are often portrayed as thin and waifish. Try finding a tomb painting where everyone isn't as svelte as a Calvin Klein model. You're gonna have to look hard. Does this mean everyone was trim and slim in ancient Egypt, as I've seen some people claim? To me, that seems pretty suspect. Tomb paintings represent how people wanted their afterlife to go. It's their aspirational Pinterest board, not necessarily their stark reality. Put it this way, if some alien race came down and judged our physiques on the last 50 years of magazines and advertisements, do you think they'd get an accurate picture? I mean, you're lovely, Kate Moss, but you aren't exactly repping my body type. 
Our outfits were pretty form-fitting in the old kingdom, but in the new kingdom, we're doing a lot more folding to create a layered, drapey look. The wealthy wear a fine sort of dress for banquets, almost like a sari. It's basically a rectangle four times as long as it is wide, which can be wrapped around us in all sorts of artful arrangements. Men and women are both fond of this outfit, as it's comfortable and looks banging on many different body types. Though, hopefully you'll have some attendants to help you, because the possibility of a nip slip is ever-present if you wrap it wrong. Unlike commoners, queens often wear colorful, embroidered linen, particularly from the New Kingdom period on. Beads are a common feature, a la that fancy Cleopatra Halloween costume you've been eyeing. We might even make a whole dress out of faience beads, strung together into a long, columnar gown that any 1920s flapper would kill for. I've posted one in the show notes for you, which I definitely think Nicole Kidman should wear to the Oscars. I'll be your plus one. I mean, just saying. Hair decor aside, hats aren't popular, which is funny considering how punishing the sun is here. Perhaps it's because the pharaoh and his royal wife wear tall hats as a sign of their status, and wearing one of your own would be a little bit like wearing a white dress to someone else's wedding. We Egyptians dye leather to wear as belts and make into thong-style sandals. That's how far back in time that pair of plastic sandals you last wore to the beach go. They're often made of leather and rushes, which'll need padding, held in place with an ankle strap. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling pretty sexy. As you head to your living quarters, grab your Saluki, a greyhound-like dog. We Egyptians are the first people on record to domesticate them. Check up on your cats while you're at it. We've domesticated them for hunting, but they're regal and strong, and have taken up a very special place in our hearts. Monkeys are also popular pets, so if you have one, make sure to feed him. Nobody likes a hangry monkey. While women's work isn't confined to the home in ancient Egypt, the most common title we're likely to hold is Lady of the House. This job involves running the household and bearing children. Most of us will be defined, first and foremost, as wives and mothers. There's a love poem that speaks to the ideal Egyptian female. Of surpassing radiance and luminous skin, with lovely, clear-gazing eyes, her lips speak sweetly with not a word too much. That's not to say that Egyptian women are expected to be quiet and always stay at home. Some women choose alternative career paths, and they have more freedom to pursue them here than anywhere else in the ancient world. So much so that visitors are shocked by it. Take Herodotus, our Greek historian friend, who shows up in Egypt, walks around, and is like, wait, what? The Egyptians themselves, in their manners and customs, seem to have reversed the ordinary practices of mankind. He wrote, For instance, women attend market and are employed in trade, while men stay at home and do the weaving. Men in Egypt carry loads on their heads, women on their shoulders. Women pass water standing up, men sitting down. He's probably exaggerating a bit on that last one. And what are you doing watching women pee anyway, you creeper? But his shock does make sense. As we'll find out when we travel to ancient Greece, this is a very different world than what he's used to. For example, let's talk a little bit about love and dating in ancient Egypt. 
Unlike in many other ancient societies, women are very visible in the public sphere, and that gives them freedom to mix and mingle with potential partners. Let's say we're at the market when we spy Tom Hiddleston, who has obviously come back in time with us. Damn, he looks amazing in eyeliner. Sorry, focus. Our eyes meet. Of course, it's instant connection. And unlike in, say, Greece or Rome, love is actually valued in a marriage, so this is considered a very good thing. He probably won't come to us directly, but we'll go and talk to not our father, but our mother or sister, asking them to plead his case. He might even write us some love poetry, which might go a little like this. To hear your voice is pomegranate wine to me. I draw life from hearing it. Could I see you with every glance? It would be better for me than to eat or to drink. You had me at pomegranate wine, Tom. But let's say I'm a shy and uncertain recipient of Tom's affection. There is plenty of magic floating around in ancient Egypt, and some of it is handy when it comes to getting a woman into bed. One such spell says that Tom should make a scented oil mix, then add in a black mesh fish to marinate. As it does, he'll need to say a specific incantation every time I have contact with another man. Eventually, he'll take his fish-infused oil and rub it on his manly member, rendering him irresistible to me. Sounds pungent. Let's reverse the situation. What if there are other girls vying for his attention? I could always purchase a love potion to aid in my cause. Or I could just curse my rival if I'm feeling particularly mean about it. We happen to have a recipe on record that promises to make the hair of a rival fall out, anoint her head with burnt lotus leaves boiled in ben oil. Not that we should. We've got to lift each other up, ladies. Most Egyptians are getting married when boys are around the age of 15 and girls are around 12. I mean, when your average lifespan only goes to 40, you're keen to get such things underway ASAP. Side note, Premarital sex doesn't seem to be so big a worry, and virginity doesn't seem to have been required of a wife. But cheating on your husband? No, no, girl. That'll get you fed to the crocs. Interestingly, there's no word in Egyptian for wedding. It isn't a religious ceremony, but a legal one, which is agreed upon either by written contract or an oral agreement. Shout your love for each other over the fence and we're golden. Move in and make house together. That's enough to show the world that you're wed. A lot of these weddings are arranged to be financially advantageous, but not always. Regardless, the bride and groom sign something that's almost like a modern-day prenup. Whatever we bring into the marriage as our dowry is ours no matter what. And if Tom dies, and let's hope he doesn't, we're entitled to at least a third of his property, sometimes even more. We'll exchange wedding gifts and agree on a subsidy to be paid to Tom's parents to help cover the cost of our upkeep, and our parents will make stipulations about how Tom must treat us in return. And what are the rules of such treatment? Let's ask Pahotep, an Old Kingdom advice columnist. If you are a man of standing, you should establish your household and love your wife at home, as is proper. Fill her belly and clothe her back. Ointment is the prescription for her body. Make her heart glad as long as you live. She is a profitable field for her lord. You should not judge her or let her gain control. Let her heart be soothed through what may accrue to you. It means keeping her long in your house. So, in other words, keep your wife happy and it'll pay off for you. 
Don't be too harsh, but don't let her boss you around. And then there's this other advice giver's gem, which I think us modern ladies will drive with. Do not supervise your wife in her house if you know that she is capable. Don't say to her, where is it? Get it for us, when she's already put it in the most useful place. Watch and be silent so that you may recognize her talents. Yeah, stop moving the crockpot, Tom. And how's this? We can divorce and marry again without much issue at all. All we have to do is move out and it's done. What? As free ladies, regardless of our class, we have two fundamental rights. The right to travel where we want and the right to enter into contracts. Our place in the grand scheme of things is defined way more by our social status than by sex. We have full equality under the law. We can own property and sell it, borrow money, serve as a witness in court, and be punished for our crimes in the same way as a man. We have evidence that women often receive equal pay rations for doing the same job as men, and women's wills deciding which child will inherit. One woman named Tay Hetem even loaned her husband some money in one written contract, three Deben in silver at a steep 30% interest. Damn, Tay, that's worse than my student loans! Keep in mind that this is not a lady utopia. Our society is definitely still patriarchal, but descent and kinship runs through women. Royal Egyptian princesses aren't sent abroad to marry foreign kings because it would give them a claim to the throne. The seed of divine kingship runs through women, and that gives us power. How did this happen when none of the empires around us give women nearly so much favor? A lot of it goes back to the gods. Remember that balance and order, or ma'at, is everything. It keeps our world turning, and we Egyptians love nothing quite so much as an efficiently turning wheel. We also love the gods, and they clearly value their women. But more than that, women are mothers. They give rise to life, to prosperity, and to little men. And that makes her important, damn it! Hmm, what a novel idea. To illustrate this thinking in action, let's dive into the violent love story of two gods, Osiris and his sister Isis. With the help of his whip-smart wife, Osiris became king of all Egypt. But the royal couple weren't psyched about our wild and heathen ways, so they gave us agriculture, wheat and barley, poetry and art. Things were looking rosy. But Set, their brother god, was not having it. So he chopped his brother Osiris into 14 pieces and threw him into the Nile for the crocodiles. He didn't count on the intrepid Isis going on a hunt to find him, gathering up all of his man-meat pieces so she could magic him back together again. But there was a problem. She couldn't find his magic man-stick. Apparently, it had been eaten by a fish. No matter. She waved her hands, said, mm, Hold my drink. I'm about to do some sexy sorcery. And made her hubby a new one out of gold. She then magically resurrects Osiris for one last steamy roll in the hay. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Get it, Isis! The product of that union, their son Horus, went on to become a ruler of men. His symbol, the hawk, is synonymous with kingship. And Isis? She's famous not only for her sexy sorcery, but for being the mother of kings, all kings. It's from her that kingly divinity flows. 
It's telling that she's one of the most popular and beloved of all the gods. Mother, devoted wife, and sexy witch lady. She'll even make her way outside of Egypt's borders, becoming a cult figure in ancient Rome. No divine woman will trump her popularity until we get to the Virgin Mary. Which all goes to show, not just the trials of having a golden penis, but that divine power is woman-born. And for us ladies, that makes all the difference. Next week, we'll continue our day by talking about what we're doing to make a crust and what we're doing for fun. We'll attend a feast, deal with pregnancy and contraception, talk a bit about medicine, and take a journey through the afterlife. Have fun twirling in your many wigs and melting makeup. Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you're a fan, consider becoming a patron. You'll help keep the show going and get access to exclusive bonus content, sneak peeks, and more. Just go to my website and click on Become a Patron. While you're there, check out the transcript for this episode, which includes the lady-centric timeline and special map I mentioned, plus a list of my research sources, music credits, and a ton of amazing images. Just go to www.theexplorespodcast.com. Speaking of images, come find me on Instagram at The Explores Podcast, or come play with me on Facebook or Twitter at The Explores Pod. With any questions or suggestions, just shoot me an email. I love hearing from you. Most of this episode's music was graciously provided by Derek and Brandon Fisher and Keith Zizza. You'll find links to their work in the show notes. Thanks, as always, to Mr. Explores, aka Paul Gablonski, for my theme music, logo, and the incredible ancient Egyptian map and timeline you'll find on my website. Thanks also to the following voiceover legends: John Armstrong, Phil Chevalier, Avery Downing, and Ray Reynolds from the Woman Splaining Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>